0: Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a brilliant futures certified eye doctor near you. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of adult vision loss in the U.S. It affects 1 in 14 over the age of 40. When caught early, there is time to take corrective action. Ask your eye doctor to test your dark adaptation speed using the Adapt DX Pro from Maculogix. Hello, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gill, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at OpenYourEyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. The CDC estimates there are up to 3.8 million sports and recreation concussions per year in the U.S. Effects are usually temporary but in some cases could last for years. 10% of all contact sports athletes sustain concussion yearly and brain injuries cause more deaths than any other sports injury. Studies show approximately 70% of concussion patients have vision issues, including poor eye coordination, sensitivity to light, blurt, and or double vision. Today's guest, Optometric physician, Dr. Len Mesner, is a world leader in research and diagnosis of traumatic brain injury. Dr. Mesner is the Vice President for Strategy and Institutional Advancement and holds a full professorship at the Illinois College of Optometry. He is a member of the Advisory Board of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and serves on the Concussion Research Committee of the North American Academy of Neuroophthalmology. He is the author of numerous peer-reviewed publications and textbook chapters and he is a 23-time recipient of the Professor of the Year award at the Illinois College of Optometry. Dr. Mesner, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you Carrie, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So Dr. Mesner or Len, you know, you know concussion is very confusing. It's it's full of alphabet soup. Can you please explain to us the difference between a TBI, a concussion, an MTBI, and CTE, and what each stands for?
1: Sure. Uh, TBI stands for traumatic brain injury, and we think of that as an umbrella term. So uh, concussion falls under the rubric of traumatic brain injury to a certain extent, Uh, CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy also falls under that category. But to a large extent, concussion historically is thought of as being, uh, shall we say, a mild form or a more mild form of traumatic brain injury. Now, that of course is a relative term. There is no such thing as a mild traumatic brain injury because you have damage to, uh, you have damage to neurons, you have damage to axons, and uh, as, as this goes on, uh, it can lead to irreparable damage to the brain as well as uh, irreparable uh, decline in neurologic function. So um, that I think is you know. Probably the most important thing to say is that this term, the concussion is a mild form of traumatic brain injury is, is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, any damage to the brain is significant and should, we, and, and should be avoided at all costs. Now chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a little bit different. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is really the, uh, the, the consequence of many repetitive blows to the brain where there is a neurodegenerative process, the hallmark of which is the accumulation of a substance called tau, T-A-U. And tau is a protein, it's a binding protein that's found within neurons, it's found within axons, and it essentially holds axons together. But when axons are stretched very, very rapidly, this leads to intracellular damage. And you end up with this dispersal of this sort of sticky protein called tau that that forms in very specific parts of the brain with CTE around blood vessels, and is largely thought to be the the reason for uh, the neurodegenerative decline and the cognitive decline and many of the behavioral uh, problems that are experienced by individuals with chronic traumatic encephalopathy.
0: There have been a number of very famous athletes, specifically football players, who have donated their brain and they have found the towel. Can you tell some of those stories?
1: Yeah, much of this goes back to work that was done uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, to a certain extent, that's how I got into this was uh, my association with Chris Nowinski, Dr. Chris Nowinski, and others at the, uh, at the Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy at Boston University. Um, where uh, Dr. Nowinski and, and, and his, um, his mentor, Dr. Ann McKee, uh, Dr. McKee was one of the first individuals to be able to develop a staining technique in order to identify these structural abnormalities or the presence of tau within the brain of individuals with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and it's interesting in that not only does tau accumulate in the brain, but it accumulates selectively in certain areas, such as the more the frontal parts of the brain, and a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And these are responsible not only for Um, not not only for memory and cognition, but also for what is termed executive function. Executive function is largely our ability as human beings to distinguish right right from wrong and and not act out on our emotions. And that is a very common problem of of individuals with CTE is that they lose that regulator. They they, they lose that executive function. They're they're very quick to anger, which uh, tends to be one of the earlier signs of CTE.
0: And uh that it hits the frontal part of the brain, I guess is because that's the part of the brain that there's a lot of trauma to. Uh yes, that that's
1: that's that 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 certainly is true. Um the interesting thing is where where the protein forms is at the base of these of these indentations in the brain called cortical sulci, and and that to a certain extent seems to be a matter of physics. That if you have a if you have a force that is being impacted against an object that's curved, it's gonna it, it's the, the the greatest intensity of the force is probably going to go toward the curved area, and that may that may explain why not only is this frontal vulnerability. Uh, but also why this deposition occurs at the base of these cortical sulci. Now, interestingly enough, um, you know, w- w- this is you know what has led us to be looking at eye movements, um, you know, in in the setting of traumatic brain injury is that. This part of the brain not only is essentially one of the hallmark areas for CTE, but it also is responsible for, for governing eye movements. And, and that, that's where there's a lot of very exciting research going, uh, particularly with as it relates to concussion and, and the ability to screen for concussion, looking for abnormal eye movements.
0: If you could tell the story of Dave Doerson and Junior Seau and maybe some other famous athletes who have donated their brain, who, who have gone through this
1: Sure. Um, Dave Duerson, of course, was um, a standout uh, player for the Chicago Bears. Uh, specifically, was part of the 1985 Bears uh, Super Bowl champion team. Uh, he um, was, uh, you know, he had the reputation for being a very aggressive hitter as a defensive back. Uh, and then, following his retirement from the NFL, he became very successful in in business. And uh, over a period of a number of years. Um, He began to show signs of abusiveness uh, toward his family as well as his friends. He made bad business decisions, and ultimately the business uh, uh, declared bankruptcy, and then uh, ultimately Mr. Dewarson uh, committed suicide, and he he did so uh, in a very unique way. He he shot himself in the chest, and his suicide notes specifically indicated, please, please see that my brain is given to the NFL's brain bank. So he made a conscious decision uh, to end his life, but to do so in a way so that his brain could uh, could, could, could be studied. And indeed, he was found to have advanced. His brain was studied uh, at Boston University. He was found to have advanced uh, findings of of, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And and of course, these these cases, uh, be they suicide-related or non-suicide-related, the pattern of the deposition of tau, the the changes that occur within the brain, uh, uh, are 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 are, are certainly quite repetitive and, and are unique to this disease process.
0: And Junior
1: Sale. Junior Sale, I don't know as much about, uh, other than, of course, um, you know he he also had you know issues with uh, with uh, he, he he underwent behavioral changes uh, later in later in life. Uh, similarly, took his own life. Uh, and his brain was also found to have rather advanced stages of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, the same is true of Aaron Hernandez. And, of course, going back to some of the very early cases, Andre Waters, who played for the, the Philadelphia Eagles. And then some, you know, somebody who grew up in the Pittsburgh area, someone who, uh, you know, of course, I watched every, every Sunday uh, as a kid growing up. And that was uh, Mike Webster, uh, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So
0: what is the epidemiology of concussion? How common is it? And do kids that have concussions and even maybe adult athletes, do they tell people that, they, that their head is hurting and that they may have a concussion?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point. And you know, the, the, the true statistics as it relates to what is the prevalence of concussion uh, remains something of a moving target. Uh, the incidence and prevalence of concussion have been on the rise over the past 10 years, but we believe that much of that is simply related to higher levels of understanding and and, work being done, for instance, by the Concussion Legacy Foundation and others uh, to make the general public more aware of concussion, to be testing for concussion on the sidelines. Uh, That, I think, plays a a big role in in, in the increase in reporting of concussion year over year. Um, but yes, there still remains a challenge as it relates to individuals and their inability to, shall we say, self-identify uh, you know, during uh, you know during a practice event or during a game scenario uh, where they have been concussed to take themselves out uh, of uh to, to take themselves out of the game. Uh, and that's one of the, you know, that that's that's one of the initiatives that we're working on is, is trying to educate athletes. Uh, to not only be concerned about their own well-being, uh, but also for their teammates to be concerned about the well-being of their of, of their colleagues, um, and, and it, it is very very important that individuals not simply be hiding or or holding this in, uh, and that to a certain extent is uh, you know is I mean we we you know for those of us that are uh, more mature I guess. Um, you know, essentially that's the way you were taught is, or that's the way you were coached is, you know, suck it up, get out there and play. The biggest challenge is in youth sports. Uh, this is this can be absolutely devastating. Uh, number one, we now know that concussions are more serious in kids, and kids and adolescents as compared to adults. And much of that is based upon physiology. We know that the white matter tracks of the brain are still being laid down well into adolescence. Some studies indicate into the early 20s. So as these brains are developing, they're that much more vulnerable uh, to the to you know to the to, to the impact, to, to the forces uh, associated with this, with these repetitive head injuries, with or without concussion, I, I may add. Um, but the, the the other one of the other Uh, big challenges as it relates to youth sports is a selective complication of traumatic brain injury, and that's something called second impact syndrome. And that is only reported in younger athletes. You don't see this reported in mature brains. You you don't see it reported among NFL players, NHL players, professional athletes at any level, uh, where an individual essentially is concussed. And before the brain has a chance to heal itself, they sustain a second impact. And oftentimes that second impact is can be viewed as somewhat nominal. And the underlying pathophysiology is poorly understood, but what seems to occur is that the second impact, uh, it kicks off this, this vicious cascade of events that occurs within the brain, uh, where it becomes dramatically swollen, uh, and it herniates somewhat downward, where it compresses the very vital structures of the brainstem, resulting in respiratory arrest, cardiac arrest, uh, and over 90% of these individuals, uh, they're they're dead typically within a matter of hours. And that is unique only to youth sports. So, you know, developing brains are more are more susceptible to damage from repetitive head injury, and you know, there is this, uh, that we, we need to be aware of second impact syndrome. It's rare, uh, but but certainly it's lethal.
0: So we need to, that brings us to the DTEC study or the, uh, the age for football players. At yeah. uh, what age should they start playing tackle football? And what age would you recommend, according to the study, not play tackle football? Yeah.
1: Uh, I guess I guess. looking at it, uh, taking the second part of your question first, is that there is overwhelming, overwhelming scientific data to show that contact sports, particularly tackle football, before the age of 12 is dangerous. As I mentioned before, there, the, the, the brain is developing, the, the, the axons, the myelin tracks of the brain are being laid down so that repetitive head injury for individuals with these developing brains, this in turn can contribute to many long-standing cognitive, psychological, and other problems later in life. You mentioned the DETECT study, and that was a study that looked at retired NFL players, And they did a series of cognitive tests and essentially stratified them or broke them down based upon the findings as to when they began playing tackle football. And there's a significant difference. There's a significant increase in the level of cognitive decline among those individuals that began playing tackle football before the age of 12 as compared to after the age of 12. So yes, NFL professional football players you know, they see contact in high school. They see contact in college. They see contact within the, within the professional ranks. Uh, but, there, but there is that split, if you will. There's a difference uh, among even professional athletes as it relates to those that started playing tackle football before the age of 12 as, as opposed to after.
0: And there's been a study that showed that football players are hit over 80 times with uh, 60 Gs. <laughs> and and that and the average is like an 80 g impact, where a box where a punch from a boxer is about 60 g's, and the space shuttle is about three or four g's. Can you talk about that for a minute?
1: Uh, sure. And you know, I, I think one of the misconceptions that people have with concussion is that well, if you build a better helmet and you know, you know that that's going to take care of things, and, and it's not. Uh, helmets were designed to mitigate and, and, and reduce the likelihood of skull fractures, and, and they do a really good job of that. But concussions should not be thought of as a bruise of the brain, where, where the brain essentially you know gets bruised. It, it, it's nothing like that at all. It's a rapid stretching of axons, and, and axons are those you know the, are are those are you, you, we can think of them as being like the neurocircuitry of the brain that can. That connects one part of the brain to the other. And the way I describe it to my patients is that we can think, what happens in the setting of a concussion is to think of an axon as being like a rubber band, is that when it, either due to a direct blow to the head or a whiplash injury, you get this very rapid stretching of the axons. And they come back. When they come back, they essentially look fairly normal uh, if one were to do something of of a macroscopic evaluation. But microscopically, there are changes. There is this disruption of the microtubular arrangement. As I mentioned before, as this happens over and over again, there is this dispersal of tau, which is the hallmark for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But that's really what happens in the setting of uh, concussion. So it 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 and it's not even just concussion, but it's it, it it's it's repetitive, what are now termed subconcussive blows. So individuals that you know are involved in collision sports where there's where there's repetitive head contact over and over and over again, that ultimately takes its toll. And again, getting back to, to youth sports, I, you know, I, I mentioned the issue of myelin being laid down well through adolescence, this devastating uh, scenario of, 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 of second impact syndrome. The other thing we need to remember is that professional athletes uh, consent for themselves. Um, yes, they need to be educated, but at the end of the day, they make their own decisions. Ah, uh, kids don't. and And, and that's why I, I think it's important for doctors, for parents, for for everyone that's involved in youth sports to to recognize this is that uh, it, it, the brain is to be protected at all costs, and and it's really our responsibility as educated individuals uh, to 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 protect the kids of our society.
0: I mean, knowing what you know now being one of the leaders in the world in, in concussion, if you had a son that wanted to play football, what would you do? How would you handle that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And believe me, I've been asked that many times. Um, I never had to deal with that. I had a I, I have a I have a daughter. She's uh, you know, she's uh, you know, she, she's grown and moved on now. And, uh, you know, she did not uh, uh, play you know, collision sports uh, growing up. Um, I, I don't believe that I would dissuade uh, a child of mine for playing collision sports. If, if that's what they wanted to do and that was their passion, I, I would support them. I, I would certainly educate them. And you know, knowing what I know, knowing what we all know uh, now, um, to be much more vigilant as it relates to uh, What is, you know, what are the protocols, particularly as it relates to practice? Um, Not a lot of people know this, but, you know, I believe in the last collective bargaining agreement of the NFL, uh, one of the bargaining uh, chips by the players union was to drastically reduce the number of full contact sessions during an entire year of an NFL season. And there are only a handful. Now you compare that, if you will, to youth sports that are regulated essentially on a statewide basis or regulated on a you know on, on a locale basis. Um, it wasn't too terribly long ago that for instance in high school football, you know, you could be out there banging heads all you wanted to. There there was very little oversight. So my, my my point is I, I you know w- would I would I say no you you can't do this i I don't think that I would but 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 I do think that I would be uh, a pretty good policeman and, and want to know an awful lot about uh, you know how our how practices being conducted and, and one more point about that this this fallacy that you need to be able to hit in practice in order to, Survive or tolerate a hit during a game is 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 is, is, purely, thick, is purely fiction. I I know that in talking to retired NFL players, uh, they've made this point very very clear to me, and that is at a competitive sports level. If you if you if you're looking at football, for instance, that if you really want to train your team to to win, don't have them hit in practice independent of concussion and traumatic brain injury, higher risk of orthopedic injuries. Um, in addition to that, you're, you're, you're stealing time from more aerobic training, which is going to give them better stamina, which is gonna make them perform better in the game. So certainly there are guidelines now uh, at the high school level, certainly at the college level. Uh, So as to be curtailing or even eliminating full contact uh, uh, drills during during practice. Uh, But not only is, does it make sense medically, but you'll win more games if you do that.
0: I've seen studies that show that there are more concussions that happen in practice than even in the game. Would you say that would be true?
1: Yeah, there, there is data certainly that, 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 supports that. And I think you bring up an excellent point that way because um, you know, while regulating games largely is a function of, you know, what are the, you know, the rules and regulations of the game, uh, the regulation of practices are, are entirely under the control of the athletic departments, of the coaching staffs. Uh, and again, you know, the better teams are not, are, are not hitting during practice. It, it, it's not necessary. Not only does it contribute to, uh, to to the to the burden of concussion, uh, but you have a multitude of other orthopedic injuries that essentially uh, that, that essentially takes these athletes off the field.
0: What uh, sports cause the most concussions? I assume it's probably football, and next would be female soccer. Yes,
1: yeah, so you're, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at high school athletics. Uh, number one is boys' football. Number two is 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 female soccer, and, and female soccer is 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 an interesting um, is is an interesting subject, because there are um th- there are a there are a number of ways that the brain can be damaged playing soccer. Now purely as it relates to concussion, um, it seems that um, the most the, the the two most common ways that all soccer players are are concussed are either head to head contact where they're both going up for a header and they're, you know, and they're, and they're, and they're, they're hitting each other, uh, but also head to ground. So more those, those direct blows to the head seem to be uh, the most, seem to be the most common cause of concussion. Um, But in addition to that, you've got the headers. And um, as further it, it, the science is bearing out now that there is significant concern as it relates to the, you know, the 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 you know the 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 the, the potential damage to the brain as it relates to headers and repetitive headers, and and that, for instance, is is why. Uh, you know the, 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 the preeminent youth soccer leagues now essentially have uh, have changed their guidelines altogether as it relates to you know, we talked about you know the the age of being uh, the, the age of allowing individuals to play, uh, tackle football that the same is the, the same is true of headers. Uh, and it's for exactly the same reason this whole issue of damage to developing brains. But one other thing that I'd like to mention is it relates to to women and and and, um, and and children, and that is that the neck musculature is not as well developed as that that is seen within shall we say mature men the sternocleidomastoid muscle the, the the trapezius muscle its that musculature is not as shall we say robust so it's it's more difficult for women and children to essentially stabilize their head if they are subjected to a blow and it doesn't have to be a blow to the head it can be a blow before, below the head resulting in in a whiplash injury. So it's that, it's that inability to stabilize the head that leads to these, this rotational acceleration that occurs within the brain that also contributes to this rapid stretching of axons. So my point there is it's not just a matter of a direct blow to the head, but also these whiplash injuries where you get this rapid stretching of axons. And certainly the whiplash injuries seem to be more problematic in both women's sports as well as in youth sports
0: we mentioned tau before and we see that in Alzheimer's patients now there's a there's a feeling that tau is actually a protect protective in Alzheimer's patients uh, that it's actually coming into the brain as a protection but maybe it's it's not so much a protection, almost like the new blood vessels coming into the macular to try to protect the macular, but they're weaker blood vessels in macular degeneration. And how does Alzheimer's and concussion relate? How are they similar when it comes to tau? And what is your feeling about tau? Is tau protection, is it protective or is it something that causes damage?
1: Yeah, I I don't know that tau is, is necessarily protective. Uh, there is there is good evidence to suggest that tau um, that, that the accumulation of tau at least within certain areas of the brain is is neurotoxic uh, that and 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 that that's what leads to this the, the, this this cascade of neurodegeneration uh, that is part and parcel of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. CTE and Alzheimer's disease are distinctly different neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, First of all, both have tau and beta amyloid deposition, but the relative presence of each is is different. With with CTE, it's more tau, uh, there's more of a preponderance of tau as, as, as compared to beta amyloid plaques. Uh, the, the location is, is, is different. Um, you know, I mentioned that with CTE, it's predominantly the frontal areas of the brain, as well as the mesial aspect of the hippocampus, that, that tend to be preferentially involved. And then the layers of the brain, where you have the deposition of tau, is it, it, different between CTE as compared to Alzheimer's dementia. So while there are similarities, Uh, there are structural differences uh, in the brain comparing CTE uh, versus Alzheimer's. Also, the Alzheimer's population, they they tend to be um, a bit older as they begin to experience symptomatology as compared to individuals with CTE. Um, With CTE, it's now thought that there may be something of a bimodal distribution that that, that earlier uh, in the life of an individual with CTE, they're more prone to these uh, these, these outbursts, these explosive outbursts, this, uh, this lack of ability to control one's emotions, and that, and that later in life, it, it evolves into more of a docile form of dementia. So uh, I, I suppose to simplify things is that yes, there is tau, and yes, there is beta amyloid found in both CTE as well as Alzheimer's disease, but the relative concentration of, of each is different uh, and, and the location within the brain is different.
0: So Tansy did some work about beta amyloid being protective. Is there, is, is there anything about that that you feel may be protective or not really?
1: Geez, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, don't know that that's necessarily true. You know, beta amyloid is certainly. I think the issue of beta amyloid is that it's more, it is more of a byproduct. And you know, if you think about Alzheimer's dementia, you know, that that's one of the big challenges. Is that, you know, so many of the clinical trials have been focusing on this clearance of beta amyloid. And, um, you know, it, it may be that the horse has already left the barn uh, at that point. And, you know, similar, you know, this, the, the same may be true with, with CTE and that it, it really is a matter of getting back to the basics of, of what is causing this. You know, we know that with CTE, you know, there's one thing that all individuals have in common, and that's repetitive head trauma. You know, n- not just the isolated concussion, but repetitive Head trauma and getting back to what I mentioned before, these subconcussive blows or subconcussive impacts, um, trauma, uh, 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 head trauma does play a role uh, in the development of Alzheimer's dementia as well. Uh, but as far as you know, what you know, looking at risk factors, what what essentially. Leads to this deposition of beta amyloid and intr- intracellular tau uh, with, with with Alzheimer's dementia. I, I, I think that that I think that that remains something of a mystery.
0: Bringing up risk factors, people who are at higher risk for getting concussed, uh, they sometimes talk about ApoE. Yeah. What's your feeling about that? What is ApoE as a genetic factor? If you could explain that and how it relates to cholesterol.
1: Sure. Uh, the, APO, the, the APOEE4 allele um, is a segment uh, within our DNA uh, that if you have this genetic mutation, shall we say, it puts you at risk for certain things. It's not necessarily cause and effect but it is a risk factor. So for instance, individuals that harbor the APOEE4 allele, there are three things that they're at risk for. One is the inability to clear cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So they are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease as well as cerebrovascular disease, ostensibly linked to Hypercholesteremia. They have less of an ability to process, I, I guess the easiest way of saying is this is to process glucose within the brain. And, and that is the so-called type 3 diabetes that 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 is that is that is oftentimes reported. Uh, but, but the third uh, risk associated with the apoee 4 allele. Is the development of chronic traumatic encephalopathy and Alzheimer's dementia. Um, now, again, that does not mean that individuals that have this mutation, that your that that the that essentially the, the 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 course is already charted for you. It, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, but what it suggests, what it suggests, is that this is a non-modifiable risk factor and that perhaps individuals should be more careful as it relates to other modifiable risk factors. Interestingly enough, there also seems to be a racial predilection for the APOE4 allele, and that it's found more often in African American populations as opposed to other ethnic groups. So, you know, it's a you know, right now I think it's safe to say that it is a marker, it is a potential risk factor, um, but but there's still an awful lot that needs to be learned.
0: And what other risk factors are there? If somebody's had psychological issues in the past, and are there any other ones that put people at slightly higher risk for being concussed?
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's really a great question because historically, you know, we thought that well, loss of consciousness or post-concussion amnesia, and yes, both of those are uh, are risk factors for more of a sustained. Uh, sustained symptomatology of concussion, but, but there was a nice study uh, that was conducted out of the Mayo Clinic uh, and reported on several years ago uh, where they looked at individuals. They looked at individuals playing youth sports largely who uh, were uh, diagnosed with concussion, and they found that the three predominant risk factors, the three highest risk factors Related to individuals and this this more sustained symptomatology of concussion, where female gender women tend not to do as well with concussion as, as men do, and there and there seem to be specific uh, specific uh, specific anatomical and, and 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 biochemical reasons for that. Uh, two is uh, a history of depression or anxiety. And third was age, that individual, that younger individuals tended to show more lingering effects as opposed to those individuals who were say adults who suffered concussions. So So yes, a history of loss of consciousness is significant. Yes, post-traumatic amnesia. History of migraine headaches uh, also is significant. But at least in the Mayo Clinic study, those were the big three. Female, gender, uh, younger age, and uh, a history of, uh, of, of psychological or psychiatric illness.
0: You brought up migraines. How are migraines and
1: concussion? what kind of similarities do they have? You know, that, that that's a that's a really great question because there are the, the similarities abound I'll, I'll start with that if you look at the biochemical changes that occur within the brain the ionic imbalances between calcium and, and potassium and and the and, and levels of glutamate and excitability and things like that there are many many similarities between migraine headaches between the pathophysiology of migraine and the pathophysiology of concussion. Uh, Interestingly enough, it is now thought that many individuals that suffer from persistent headaches following concussion is that this may be a form of post-traumatic migraine or or post-traumatic headache syndrome. Uh, and that's why treating many of these individuals uh, with, uh, uh, with, with, with the now approved migraine therapy seems to, to work quite well. Uh, I, I'd, I'd just like to preface that by saying that the good news with concussion is that the vast majority of individuals, if they are rested properly and they don't get back into the swing of things too quickly, is that... Is, is that about 80% are pretty much recovered within two weeks. So, so that's good in that, uh, in, in that Herculean measures do not need to be applied. You know, rest, uh, 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 some form of analgesia, um, you know, that's what works best as it relates to most individuals that have suffered a concussion. But for those individuals with persistent post-concussion uh, symptoms. What, what, is, what is commonly referred to as post-concussion syndrome. Certainly the chronic headaches or the chronic daily headaches are fairly common. Uh, and, and, there, and there's ample information now to suggest that many of these individuals are, are, are probably suffering from a form of post-traumatic migraine. So let's talk
0: about the symptoms for the non-ocular symptoms first of concussion you break it up into different categories of cognitive, emotional sleep, headaches, et cetera. You can go into the
1: different symptoms and then we'll talk about the eye symptoms after. Sure, I I think you pretty much just just nailed them. Uh, Certainly headache is very, very common. Um, the, the thing with headache and concussion is that in some individuals, there can be a delayed effect. So not everyone is, you know, who's concussed uh, during an athletic event is immediately going to suffer a headache. Sometimes there is that delayed effect of, say, several hours or, or even a day. But, but headache certainly is very, very common. Uh, depression, abnormality, mood imbalance. Uh, you mentioned sleep disorders. Um, uh this can go both ways. Uh, Sometimes uh, individuals that are concussed uh, they sleep very little or they sleep uh, a lot. Frankly in the early you know the first couple of days uh, sleeping a lot can can be a good thing uh, as it's putting the body at rest both from a physical standpoint as well as from a cognitive standpoint. Uh, but 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 those, those I think are, you know, are, are some of the more common you know this pers- you know th- this feeling of, of of being a bit off axis uh, being in a fog I think a very good way of describing it you know and an easy way of you know determining if you ask a, a group of ten people uh, of, have they ever been concussed. Uh, you ask that question initially, and you know, maybe a couple of hands will go up. If you ask it a different way and say, you know, we're ever struck in the head or had a whiplash injury where you, quote unquote, had your bell rung, uh, a lot more hands are going to go up. A- and that phenomenon that is commonly described as having your bell rung, that's a concussion.
0: That happened to me. I was in playing high school baseball, and I was at a rundown in practice. And back in the day, we didn't wear helmets in practice. And I got, I it right in the back of the head and down I went. I was out for, I don't know how long, but I was out for a while.
1: Yeah. And I got up
0: and just started playing again. No one ever said like, oh, you might have a concussion.
1: Yeah, no, well, you know, remember, you know, back when you and I were growing up and we are of the same genre, uh, is that, uh you know concussion was thought to be a pretty a pretty insignificant event you know you know just shake it off and, and, and you'll be fine of, of course that that's that that is no longer true but uh, you know getting back to you know your story a, a couple of interesting things you know what you described was an episode of concussion with loss of consciousness the important thing to remember is that the vast majority of individuals who are concussed do not suffer from loss of consciousness. Um, you know the vast majority. It's these other. You know I feel dazed. I feel confused. I've, you know, I, I I've got a headache, and you know we'll get into some of the the ocular and the and, and the vision problems later. But but that's concussion. Fewer than ten percent are associated with loss of consciousness.
0: Yeah, and if you have loss of consciousness, it's it's much worse going forward. It can be. Now let me ask you about sleep. Some people have insomnia, some people have hyposomnia. Yeah. People that have insomnia, they don't know the pathophysiology why people can't sleep. Is it because the blood brain barrier is broken and there's a lot of inflammation? Or do we have any idea why people have insomnia from concussion? What the, you know that's a great
1: question, and, and to be honest with you, that that one's above my pay grade. Uh, I, you know, my, I, I, I know that it's quite common. You know, the, the precise neurologic substrate. Um, I have to plead ignorance on that one.
0: You know, it's interesting because my 11-year-old asked me that question yesterday. I didn't know the answer, so I figured I'd ask you. Uh, so let's talk about vision. Uh, why is it so common to have visual symptoms when people have uh, concussion?
1: You know, if we think about the brain, um, a very simple way of stating this is that over 50% of the brain's volume is related to vision or visual motor processing. So a huge part of the brain is responsible for vision and our ability to control eye movements. In addition to that, all parts of the brain are affected by concussion, the cerebral hemispheres, the brainstem, the cerebellum. Similarly, all parts of the brain are related to vision, visual motor processing and the accurate control of eye movements. So it certainly makes sense from a neurologic standpoint that vision or visual motor abnormalities are going to be quite prevalent among individuals who have been concussed.
0: So when we look at the different symptoms, let's start off with photophobia, people that are very sensitive to light. Talk about that and how long does it last and why do we get it and how does it relate to the trigeminal nerve and maybe dry eye?
1: You know, getting back to what we talked a little bit about before, and that is migraine headaches. Uh, we know that photophobia or light sensitivity in migraineurs is very, very common. And so too, photophobia in the setting of concussion is very, very common. and. There is evidence to suggest that, at least in some individuals, that it's a common mechanism. It's a common pathway. You know, it, it, as you just said, the the, the trigeminothalamic arc uh, that you know that, 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 that may be uh, responsible, at least for an element of the photophobia among individuals with concussion, as well as individuals with migraine. But getting back, you brought up the point of dry eye, which is really fascinating. We know that the cornea is perhaps the most highly innervated structure within the body. And of course, it's innervated by the first division of the trigeminal nerve. Um, But as it relates to head pain, of course, the trigeminal nerve is grand central station. In the context of head pain, particularly with migraine headaches, and you know, if we think about even minor irritation of the cornea, subclinical irritation of the cornea, uh, that may be significant in setting off a brain that has already been sensitized as a result of concussion or an individual who has migraine headaches. So you've got this highly sensitized brain, and then you're adding to that even in a minuscule amount by a minor irritation of the cornea. So that's something that over the past couple of years, uh, I've become much more tuned in on. And that is both my patients that uh, are migraine sufferers uh, as well as individuals who are uh, complaining of uh, persistent headaches following concussion, uh, is to look at their cornea, evaluate their cornea, uh, and uh, e- even if, they're, even if it, it seems to be subclinical dry eye, or even if it's not, is to consider lubricating agents for these individuals to see if that may play a role in dampening the intensity of the head pain.
0: And how about filtering lenses? How does that help filtering out blue
1: FL forty uh, one? Uh, those these things help. Yeah, they do help for a significant number of individuals, and that really gets back to the pathophysiology of concussion as it relates to the transmission of the visual signal um, within the retina. As you know, there are these very very large cells. Within the ganglion cell layer that have nothing to do with vision, they're termed intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, and they play what they what they do play a role in is setting one's circadian rhythm, so as to determine when do you get up. And when do you go to bed based upon levels of ambient light? So these are cells that sense, that, that sense the level of light and then communicate this to the appropriate centers within the brain that modulates circadian rhythm. Now, it's felt that these are the cells uh, that are, are strongly tied into not just the photophobic mechanism, but the headache associated with migraine and, and, and post-traumatic migraine. So there, there, there's a lot of very good research going on now, both among migraine populations as well as individuals with post-concussion syndrome to determine the value of light filtering lenses, not just from the standpoint of reducing the level of photosensitivity, but also to mitigate the head pain that these individuals experience. Uh, there's a very uh, there's a there's a fascinating study out of the University of Utah several years ago that actually that, that really determined that there was something of a bimodal spectral sensitivity that both lower and higher wavelengths of light may maximally stimulate these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells and that by creating a lens that selectively knocks out the, the low and the high pathways that that, that may be you know, should we say the holy grail to to minimize uh, you know these the, the 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 you know not just the photophobia but but to but to minimize the uh, you know the, the headache that's that, that's tied into this pathway but, but Yes, de- definitely looking at light filtering lenses. And, you know, there are many that are out there. Um, you know, the computer gaming glasses, which uh, I've looked at, and I, I think, I think they're, they're really just sophisticated yellow lenses. I could be wrong. Uh, you mentioned the FL41 lenses the, that have been uh, suggested to be effective for, for migraine headaches. Uh, yeah, I think that those are all good options, and I think that they're reasonable options uh, to, uh, you know, to suggest for individuals, you know, particularly with post-concussion syndrome and, and the persistent headaches and the photophobia.
0: What do the FL41s uh, filter out? What, what wavelength do we know, and, and how do they help?
1: Yeah, I you know, that, that's a great question. I would have to go back and 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 research, and, and I, I would go back I would have to go back and and, and check on that that again. But you know, effectively it, it you know to a certain extent, you know, we think of you know blue light as being injurious or be being irritative and that and, and that to a certain extent is true. And, and all of these lenses do a pretty good job of you know filtering out filtering out blue light but in addition to that there may be something to uh light more in the in in the green or the or the or the yellow or the orange part of the visual spectrum that uh that 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 may that that may be causative as well i guess you need
0: a spectrometer to see where they're filtering it like i know uh Blue Tech with their lenses, they, they were able to filter out at 455, where some of the others are only filtering out at 400. So that's what they claim that they get a little bit more comfort looking, looking at a computer, but I got it. Okay, yeah,
1: yeah, that, that may be true. I think one of the challenges is, it, 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 as you know, um, it, it's, you, you just don't know until you commit these devices or you commit these agents to the scrutiny of, of clinical trials. And yes, they're laborious. And yes, they take a long time. Um, you know, what you're stating up front certainly makes a lot of sense. You know, there's something, I mean, you know, does it make sense? Uh, the answer to that, I would say is yes. The question then is, okay, does it, you know, is it valuable? Because it, you know, can it withstand the rigors of scientific investigation?
0: Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean
1: his boat. It's natural y es a buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind.
0: It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me. AND YOU.